John, we recently had our national conference on the theme of missions. The title was Finish the Mission, Bringing the Gospel to the Unreached and Unengaged. And there we talked briefly about the missionary call. And some of the feedback we heard was that folks got helped there. And I thought that may be a good place for us to start this Q&A time uh, because we've been hearing now about missions for two hours in the seminar. Yeah. And God may be stirring in hearts. How would you help those wrestling with a missionary call? Hmm. Um, I'm turning here to Romans 15. I'm not sure I can put my eyes on the exact text that I'm thinking about. Um, it's, I think it's here in verse 20 where Paul says, uh, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. So there's a unique calling. He, he didn't expect that from Timothy or most of the people. Something was in him, right? And that's what you're trying to figure out. At least I am, you know, with every phase of my life. Is there something new, something unique that I'm, is God's burden for me to do? Call it a call, call it whatever you want to call it. It's just, it's in you and, and it's your holy ambition, and, and that's, so I want to know, how did Paul get this? And, and, of course, the immediate answer is, well, he got knocked off his donkey on the road to Damascus. That's how he got it. And we wish that would happen to us. But that, that's not what he says. Okay, this, this is why it's really relevant. To you. I think this will help you. Listen. Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written... Those who have never been told of him will see him. And those who have never heard will understand. So Paul traces his holy ambition not to the Damascus Road experience, which really surprises me. Like, I mean, if there ever was a call, it was God talking to him from heaven on the Damascus Road. I will show him how much he must suffer as he takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And here he says... My holy ambition is flowing from Isaiah. Isaiah what? You can see it in the margin. And so here's, here's the conclusion, personally, that I draw from that. I think Paul's life was guided by, yes, some unique encounters with Jesus, but also by immersing himself in the Bible. And the Bible just took him when he got to this verse. It just took him. When he read, those who have never been told will see, and those who have never heard will understand, he said, that's me. And so when he, when he had a chance to write about his holy ambition, that's what he wrote about. And I think that's the way it works for a lot of people. I'm, I'm just commending that to you. Live in the Bible Read World Magazine and mission biographies and go to missions conferences and listen, but pray, God, take me, grab me. And it might be pastor of a local church. It might be school teacher. It might be just who knows what it might be. But I think this is, this is the place you're going to hear the voice of God. If you go out in the woods and close your Bible and don't read this, you're probably going to hear another voice. Um, and call it a call. Um, but if you stay here, let God, let God make this personal. And I just frankly think there is a subjective dimension to this that you can't 
quantify. Like if somebody said, well, how do you know that verse really applies to you? Well, in the end, you can't prove it, you know? If, if a verse won't let you go, say a verse relating to frontier missions, it just won't let you go. You just come back to it over and over. You sleep, you wake up, think about it. You go a month and you don't think about it, it comes back to you. You go two years, it just keeps coming back. You should probably should pay attention to that. And yet, you couldn't prove it. You couldn't prove that that was God. You just, eventually you know. Eventually you discern, okay, that part of the Bible is my mandate. It just seems to me that's the way Paul, that was Romans 15, 20 and, and 21. So there's lots more to say about the call, about prayer, about the body of Christ, about gifts, about needs in the world. I got a whole little paradigm, but that, that to me might be the most helpful thing to say right now. Here's a question that came in that relates to that. Uh, did you ever consider going as a long-term cross-cultural missionary? Why didn't you go? Well, I hope it wasn't disobedience, um, but I'll let the Lord decide in the end about my motives. We don't know our hearts perfectly. So the answer is yes. I'd be a liar if I didn't say yes because I've preached at, what, how many? 1983 to 2011, whatever the math is, I've preached a mission sermon every year, at least one uh, between those years. And every time almost, I say to the people, every time this rolls around, I reassess whether I can stay here. You know, if there are 10 men holding a log at one end and one man holding a log at the other end, where should you grab hold of the log? (laughs) That's kind of argument. Uh, the needs around the world are simply extraordinary. Why are you preaching in this church-dense Twin Cities where there are probably 1,200 evangelical churches for all these well-educated Americans? And the only answer I have is, well, there's more than one, but here's a couple. I think my gifts and my passions lend me to being a mobilizer, equipper, inspirer rather than a solitary goer-doer. And that could be wimping out there, you know. It could be justifying whatever. That's one. And just I've never had any text take me like that to be a goer. I'm married to a woman who in a minute would go. There's no, I won't have that excuse someday. You know, if, if the Lord ever says, I did mean for you to go one time when you were considering this and you missed it, it won't be Noel's fault because the story I love to tell back when I was discouraged, probably when Brad was here in the early 80s, um, I was so bummed out one Sunday after church. I went home, sat down at the dining room table. I was still living in Tom Steller's house downstairs, and I was putting my head in my hand like this. I said, Noel was in the bedroom right off to the side. I said, I think I'm going to go to Africa. That's how discouraged I was after one Sunday morning. And she called from the bedroom, tell me when to pack. (laughs) What a woman. (laughs) That's great. That's a good, just a little side here. Marry the right person, okay? It's going to give your life to missions. You better marry a radical person. Um, What was the question again? (laughs) Uh, 
how far how far off did I get? Oh yes, have I ever been? Have I ever considered? I try to consider it. So I've got to preach what Sunday after this Sunday. I'm preaching on missions. All right, so I'm going to sit with Jesus and my open Bible on Friday a week and come up with a word for this church on missions. And as I do it, my conscience is going to say, "So how are you going to respond to this message?" You know, you're 65. You're going to be done here in a few years. What are you going to do? This the season. So I try, and uh, and and I'll to, to my dying day. I hope I hope I keep honest with the Lord and say anywhere, anywhere, in any capacity you say, I want to be available. Here's a couple questions that relate to stirring up a passion in a local church. One from the side of the leader, one from the side of the layperson. How do you awaken a passion for global frontier missions? amongst an apathetic American church. Let's take that from the layperson side. And then one of our DG employees writes, I hear from pastors often who don't know how to encourage missions at their churches. What would you recommend they do? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have one main thing to say, and that is trying to stir up carnal people with a little view of God to have a big view of missions is, is, is impossible. Carnal people who have a small God, uh, try to get them fired up to lay their lives down for missions or to dream a dream that's global is, you know, impossible. So the strategy is not mainly to talk about missions. If you want to get a church eventually able to lay its life down for missions or love those who do lay their lives down and get behind them and send them and do a short term and do local ministries in a radical way. If, if that's the kind of people you want, the long term, and we're talking five or ten years here, is to build a biblical theology into people so that their view of God changes. That's the issue. It's how big, massive, glorious is your God? I mean, you, if, you, if you read biographies, and, and I'm not just talking about the big, famous bigwigs. I'm talking about single women, uh, the Gladys Aylward types, the Amy Carmichael types, because those are well-known. The only reason they're well-known is because they've got books written about them. But, but women and men who've, who've laid their lives down, they had a massive view of God. Just he can do whatever he wants, and he will take care of me. I'm going to serve this great God. But if you have a little teeny God and I'm kind of central in his affections and blah, 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 it, you, what's to build on? So my answer is missions, the way to get people fired up about missions is not to preach missions to a, 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 a small God people, but to take years to help them fall in love with this book by showing them treasure after treasure, week after week, spreading a banquet from this book so that they just can't get enough of the book. And then show them who's at the center of this book. And he's really explosively big. And he is uncontainable. And he will blow your categories again and again until people just, their, their, their God just gets so big. Then, when you suggest that he might care about the whole universe and the whole world, and he has a plan. It all makes sense. And I'll just I'll tell you another little, little conviction I have about this strategy is people ask me, well, what if you're in an Arminian church, you know, or a church that doesn't really believe in the doctrines of grace or whatever? I say, well, um, don't, don't fight that battle at the front end. 
be faithful to this word, get people to fall in love with this book, help them to trust, help, get them to trust you. You believe the book more than you believe any system of theology. And then just keep showing them how big God is. And when their God gets big enough, all the doctrinal pieces just start to fall into place. They start to fall into place. All, the, all those controversial doctrines, it's like, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, that is what he is. And so, I mean, I don't understand it all, but yeah, that's all over the Bible. And, but if, if you go at each one of those things, just picking and poking. So same principle. So pastors should, I think, uh, take, to stand here over and over again, feed delicious meals to their people, and then show them that the center of all those meals is a, is a med, magnificent God. So for, say, the layman or the pastor who has been awakened to a big God and his global purposes, how do they then stay awakened? Here's, a, here's one question. How do I care about the nations when I'm just trying to keep my head above water and raise my kids and work on the marriage? That's really good. Yeah, I like that question. Um, the assumption is, I think, that um, you need to have a lot of resources emotionally first and then you can manage the weight of the world or the weight of missions. There is another way to look at it and, and I got this from J. Campbell White, the, lay, the head of the lay missionary movement in the early 1900s and he argued that one of the reasons we're bogged down and discouraged in our vocations and our families and marriages and whatnot is because our hearts have um, shriveled up and we don't have a global mission. It's, a, you know, it's paradoxical. Like the world is, is not just a, a weight like, oh, and I have to divest myself of, of, of all these other good things in order to be atlas and hold the world up. It, it, it's not like that. It's, it, you, if you get a God who's big enough and then you see his purpose and you, you find a way to be plugged in to that, there's an, there's an energy flowing this way from that, not just this way to, to hold all that up. So that, that's, that's one thing. But I don't, I don't want to be naive. There are seasons in life, okay, chapters. I've to make this plain for Noel, and I want, I want moms especially to feel this. There are seasons in life, okay? There's a diaper season, and it may last for 12 years, you know? 10,000 diapers a year. And, and she may say, well, will this ever be over? I did, this is, and, and she needs to love that season and realize it's a season. Babies don't stay in diapers. And then they, they get worse. <laughs> <laughs> But every season has unique challenges, and I would just say there are probably some seasons where you're not you're not going to every missions committee meeting. You're just not okay. You love it, you support it, you send your check, you pray, but you're not all there because here's a season. This is a season. It, I've got this disabled child, or my marriage is really stressful this year because he's traveling so much or whatever. And and I, everybody's kind of relaxed and say, okay, all right. This season, I have to attend to, to this, but it doesn't mean I've lost all my p- passion. I just, it will change. It will change, okay? And, and they have. I mean, I, I just would love to talk to all of you personally about how we were talking about this in our small group Thursday. 
morning about, about um, marriage issues. And if you get into situations where you feel it, it's hopeless, it, it's, and you'll never be happy again. You can't get any better. It just can only get worse. And be, we need to say to people like that, believe God. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And you get through seasons like that. God can, and, and you wake up a year later, two years later, and say, he did it, you know? Or, and the same thing with, with missions. So, yes, I, I really, I mean, I, I, that touches me, that question of multiple burdens in life. And now Piper, he's adding on the world. He's going to put the world on my shoulders. Um, this question, no. Uh, can you touch on the importance of discipleship in the Great Commission? Important, very important. <laughs> um, make disciples of all nations, baptizing. So it sounds like that first part means um, take a person who's not a disciple, that is, not a Christian. Okay? Some people use the word disciple for mature Christian. Convert, disciple, Disciple maker, bad, bad paradigm. Uh, so in this in this verse, you got non-Christian nations, and you want them to become disciples of Jesus. So conversion, baptism—that's the first part. Teaching them to observe. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The reason I wrote my book, "What Jesus Demands from the World," is to explain the second half of that. Like, I, I just kept looking at it saying, I'm supposed to teach all that Jesus commanded to all these converts. All of it. So, I'm saying it's huge. Not just, it's huge. All that I commanded you. So, I took a five-month sabbatical at, at, uh, in Cambridge, England, and I collected all the imperatives in the Gospels, about 500 of them. And I took five months to distill them into a book called What Jesus Demands from the World. The whole point of that book is to help missionaries do the second half of the Great Commission. Don't just get them converted, baptized, and then on to a new. But everything he commanded, love your enemies. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Stay married. You know, things like that. He's commands hundreds of things in the Gospels, and I bent my brain trying to figure out, how can I do that? I put them in 50, 50 chapters. So, it's huge. Discipleship, what I read in, in Operation World, and what I read in the Bible, is that this is the crying need. So, maybe I was too hard on Timothy-type missionaries. I didn't mean to be hard. I believe in what leadership training guys are doing here, in, in partnering with churches overseas who are newer in the sense of like a century old instead of 2,000 years old or whatever, newer and, and thin in terms of resources with regard to books and training and teachers. Partner, figure out how to do it so that it can be done. That's just huge. I mean, if I didn't believe in discipleship, what in the world would I be doing here? I'm just preaching to people who know the Bible every Sunday. You mentioned the commands and commands that seem to be in tension at times. Here's this question. In response to ministry burnout, there's been a focus on taking care of our families. But have we swung too far the other way? 
Yes, some have, I think. Um, and it's hard to, it's really hard to, to get this right. You know, he who doesn't care for his family is worth an unbeliever. Pastoral epistles. And unless you hate your wife, your children, brother, sister, you cannot be my disciple. So there you have your, your biblical antitheses. So care for your family or you're worse than an unbeliever and behave in some ways that look like hate to the world. And practically, that would mean things like a couple coming to me and saying, this has happened two or three times, um, we believe we should go. And uh, mom is probably not going to live another three years with cancer. Should we go? And of course, that's not an easy question. Is she cared for? Are there people? Are you essential here? Um, yes, she's, she's cared for. It'll just be hard, really hard for her and hard for us. They go. Now, some people say, you, you hate her. If you, if, you, if you loved her, you'd stay. You hate her. I think that's what Jesus means when he says, unless you hate your mother, your father. He doesn't mean hate them. He means you look like you hate them for worldly people who don't have your understanding of your values and your, your categories. So getting this balance right in the ministry is very difficult. And here, I think I'd, I'd appeal to seasons in part. There are going to be seasons. There might be seasons in a month, seasons in a week. But overall, a wife and children need to, be, need to feel treasured not just inconvenient to your ministry, treasured, and they need to be nurtured. You know, that's what the Bible says. You, you nurture a wife and you nurture your, your children and the wife has her responsibilities in, in that as, as well. So everybody knowing the other's person and then finding the, the pattern that m- works for that family. The, the problem is we, I think we tend to generalize Take one person's situation and say that's the way everybody should be when it just can't work that way. Jobs are not the same. Wives and husbands are not the same. Kids are not the same. And seasons in life are not the same. And so I, I, I think all things considered in the Bible, if you took all the, all the pieces that the Bible would lean towards uh, kingdom issues are first. And then family and business and that sort of stuff. So, Jesus, others, yourself, joy, including family. What do you think is the cause for the imbalance of the ratio of men to women, women to men, doing cross-cultural missions? Um, Well, the situation seems to be something like this. There are married people, and that's men and women. They go together. And then there are single people, and some are men and some are women, like half. Um, and single men don't tend to go into missions. In fact, single men don't tend to go to church. Look for a church with a lot of 40-year-old single men. You won't find it, Right? They either get married or disappear. So if they're disappearing from the church, they're not, they're not going to be in missions either, whereas women tend to hang around longer 
in church and for whatever reason, and, and therefore they're, they're more ready or willing to go. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that is. I, rather than figuring it out in terms of cause, I'd rather just work like crazy to fix it, which means preach and lead in such a way as to make men not leave the church. And, and I'm really thrilled and thankful that the newer, young, restless, reformed types are putting a high premium on encouraging men to be godly men. And our pastor's conference in January is going to be devoted to this, called Building Men. Um, there, are, there are ways that the church has come to feel effeminate to men. And so they drift away. They kind of look at it and think, this place for men, this place for women. And I, like crazy, don't want to communicate that. I want want Christianity to feel very masculine, a kind of masculinity that women feel really safe around. There's a strength that can be abusive and manipulative and coercive, and there's a strength that is loving and protective and causes women to walk into it and feel like, I could be safer on these kind of men. They, they love Jesus like crazy, but they're men. That's kind of the feel I'd, I'd like a church to have so that it's, it's led by men and it's prominently men and, and they are madly in love with their wives and the single women feel honored and, and respected, but but I don't, I don't know the answer to the question why males, as they grow older, unmarried, go off like that. And uh, women don't tend to go off as much like that. I, I don't, tell me afterwards if you know the answer to that. So if there's a greater number of single women in missions than men, let's say there is. Yeah, yeah there uh, is. What then sure. is the place of women in missions? Yeah. Uh, assuming a complementary oh, yeah. view. Um, at the end of my little book, What's the Difference? I've got two pages with lists about, I don't know, 80 or 100. What can women do? You know, back when I wrote that book, when the controversies were much more violent than they are right now, I mean, get yourself hurt believing what I believe. Um, women would indignantly say, well, if we can't be elders, what can we do? Like, what? (laughs) So I made a list of about 80 things. Um, uh, And and lots of them relate to missions. Um, And and here's the short answer. When When I say that the Bible calls godly men to be the leaders in their home and the leaders in the church, elders, let's say those two things. Um... I don't mean that with regard to ministering to women and ministering to children. That that means women shouldn't be, in general, leaders of men. They shouldn't exercise a certain kind of leadership of men. Three-fourths of the world, at least, is women and children. Probably, what, three, four billion of those are lost? You can do anything you want with them. 
Is that big enough? That, I mean, that's big. A, a woman can dream her eyes out with regard to that three-fourths of the globe and to do whatever she wants. That may be an overstatement. You might help me contradict myself there, but all, all I mean is the, the Bible really cares about the dynamic between men and women. It's not, it, it has nothing to do with a woman's incompetency. A man's headship in the home is not based on his being superiorly competent. I've said this to the Desiring God, I mean the BCS guys recently. I said that God calls you to be the leader in your home has nothing to do with your superior competency. You are not superior. She's more competent than you in most ways. She's probably smarter. She's probably more well-read. She probably knows her Bible better. She probably, I mean, the, the list of things that wives are better at than husbands is long. This is, this is nothing to do with competencies. This has to do with God's created dynamic of what a man is and what a woman is in their gut with regard to the, the ballet of leadership and, and submission. So, when I think of my mother and, and women in general facing the world, I don't think in terms of lesser competencies. And in fact, I, I just read an article the other day, the only way Muslim women will be reached is by women. You, you don't get near, a man doesn't get near a Muslim woman. So if they matter to Jesus, like infinitely, then we've got to have women martyrs and probably they're going to be a lot of single ones because the, as soon as you've got a man tagging along he's a threat whereas you're not, you're not a threat until you start being successful and then you might get killed that's the kind of women we, we need um, a couple questions here to finish related to Islam um Islam comes, uh, this comes to mind with Islam because of the Somalis you mentioned here in town. Uh, what, what direction would you give us on this idea of crossing a culture without changing geography? Yeah. Um, doing missions without going, yeah, yeah. reaching unreached oh. Somalis here right. in the Twin Cities. Yeah. I suppose the biggest, one of the biggest disappointments that I'll go to my grave with is that over my 30-year tenure here, we've not been very fruitful with regard to Native Americans. The culture there's the cultural barriers there are just massive. They're all over. This is there are more urban Indians, Native Americans in, in this city than any other city in the country, probably. And we've not been fruitful. And 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 it's there are stirrings right now. And if you're here and you're among those stirrings, I just I would I lay down my life to help you be successful. Um, if, if God's calling you not to go anywhere but one quarter of a mile that direction, uh, I'd say that's the highest calling in the, in the world. What, what would it mean to the kingdom and to the glory of Jesus if there were a vital worshiping church of redeemed and rescued Native Americans in this city? There are little pockets, but... So that's a huge disappointment, and then the list could go on, right? And now we... we they come through in waves. When I came here, we had 300 Laotians worshiping here. 
And then they all moved, and, and there's no big pocket of Laotians in the Twin Cities like there used to be. Now it's Somalis and probably Ethiopians and a few others I don't even know about. And I'd, I'd rather not go to my grave with that regret added on top. That, and, and the answer then is we treat them just like mission. I mean, like they need missionaries. I mean, I try to strike up conversations with, uh, I've got two guys that I talk to regularly. They know me. I know them. They're evangelists. I'm evangelists. They're trying to win me to the Quran. They carry it around. I carry my Bible around. We talk. But that, I mean, will that go anywhere? I, I hope it can go somewhere. But to, to have somebody who just figures out how to talk the language, live the culture, and just embed themselves there for the next 10 or 15 years and, and, and plant that church. That, that's just, that, that is holy ambition, unreached peoples, cross-cultural, dangerous missions. I mean, we, we know from the news that, that the Taliban recruits here and, and takes bombers from Somalis in this neighborhood over to other places and trains them. So we're not, we're not dealing with nothing here. This is a tough and risky place. So the answer is, hear me when I talk about peoples and not geography. I really do mean that a, a Paul-type missionary would stay right here and give his life to the Somali people or the Native Americans. Related to Islam, what about Jesus coming to Muslims in dreams? Is that real? Is that real conversion? Isn't that demotivating for missions? Um, I don't know whether it demotivates or not. I think it deflects. It deflects the way you pray. I've heard people pray, oh God, give them dreams. Oh God, give them dreams. Because they've heard stories that somebody had a dream. And there are different kinds of dreams. I got no problem with somebody having a dream that a redhead white guy shows up at his door with a book in their hand with a message they need. That's a glorious dream because they're going to get saved when the redhead knocks on the door, white face, book in the hand. Whoa, I had a dream about you and they believe in Jesus. That's very different than having a dream of Jesus coming to them in their head, preaching the gospel to them that they've never heard of before and believing it and being saved. That I'm suspicious of. Big time, because of reasons I'll give you tomorrow of why I think the gospel needs to be heard. How shall they believe unless they hear? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they be sent? That's a pretty significant argument in Romans 10. And it doesn't say, well, they'll hear because they'll get dreams. So that argument is invalid. So let's be careful when we, when we think dreams that we don't think replacing the biblical paradigm of how people get saved. People get saved by hearing the gospel preached. And it says, how shall they preach unless they be sent? It doesn't say, oh, they can preach in a dream when they're not even there. So I'm very suspicious of those stories where a person actually hears the whole gospel, claims to hear the whole gospel for the first time in their head during a dream, and they got saved without any connection with the church. I, I just put a big question mark over that. But as far as, as, far as Cornelius-type dreams, okay, send to Peter, and he has a message for you. Oh, okay. And they said, knock, knock, knock. There's a man down there who got a message from God that you have a message for us, 
And it says in chapter 11, a message by which they will be saved. So Cornelius wasn't saved. He had this relationship with God in some way or with a kind of God in some way. And, and God had mercy upon him and gave him a vision and said, go get the gospel and I'll save you with it. I want that to happen. But, but I, I think we should pray biblically. <clears throat> I mean, we've been through a lot of phases in my life. Territorial spirits, you know. Man, oh man, was that red hot in the late 80s. Territorial spirits. So what do you do to evangelize Argentina? You get a prayer walk and you go down there and you walk circles around crying down the territorial spirits that are over Argentina, keeping them from leaving the gospel and pray against the territorial spirits and get victory and have Michael come in and defeat the territorial spirits and all because of a verse in Daniel. I say, oh, well, yeah, they're probably demons that are more or less assigned to places. And I mean, we got a teeny little place in the Bible that talks that way. And so, yeah, but then you start to make it a, a program and you build missions around it and you do. And I say, can we just, you know, stay at the center and pray the Bible? Paul says, pray for me that the word would be given me that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And he never talked about Please pray that I be protected from the territorial spirits over Corinth or anything like that. So that, that, that was a little wave. You don't hear much about it anymore today. And I think dreams are going to be a wave. And, and you've got these waves. And if we stay close to the, the paradigm of the book, then we won't get swept around by all these waves that come rolling through. We have one final question. It's a little bit on the lighter side. Uh, a quick announcement. We will resume at 9 a.m. tomorrow. That's 8 o'clock Eastern for those on the live stream. And uh, we have opened up a nursing mothers and crying children room. If you go down the left side, out the commons, past the restrooms, the, the far end, they have the sound on in there. And I believe a, a screen as well to serve those who Good. would be blessed by it. Uh, the final question then, and if you'd close us in prayer after mm. this. Uh, Pastor John, what happened to your usual document camera and transparencies? <laughs> um, in, in all, in all my, uh, I, I hope that question doesn't mean they wish I would go back, but maybe it does. And maybe I will. So we used to set up a, 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 a camera and I would put a transparency down and I'd write on the transparency. And, uh, and when I knew I had to get this seminar ready, I said, the other day to Josh and the other guy says, there's just got to be a technology where I could produce this stuff on the screen and, and write on it too. Can I write on it too? Do I have to choose between just a boring PowerPoint or can I write on this? And, uh, and they found it. And uh, so this is an experiment to see whether it works. This is a free program called New Dot Annotate for the iPad. So if you want to know what it is, it's there's a, there's a $10 one called I Annotate, which we didn't use because you, can't, you can write on it, but you can't see it when you write on it. <laughs> what use is that? You know? uh, and, the, and then the free one, neu.annotate, we load it up, and uh, you, you can write on it with a with little stylus that I've got. So it's an experiment. You can give me feedback when we're done, see what you think. Would you pray for us? Father in heaven, I, I thank you for the friends here who've stayed late and care about things. And thank you for those who've had to go and tend to other important things. 
And I pray now that you give us the rest we need and our, our minds would process the things we've heard with discernment so that if anything's been amiss or imbalanced, you'd clarify that. And if things have been true, that you'd really sear them into our conscience and make them deeply part of us so that we change our lives in any place that's needed. Thank you for helping us here. In Jesus' name, amen.